if you will, open me in your Bibles to Psalm 4. We'll be in Psalm 4 this morning. We've been making our way through book one of the Psalms. We finished Psalm 3 last week. We come to Psalm 4 this week and we will begin by reading the text together and opening with a word of prayer. We're told in the beginning of Psalm 4, this is to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. So this is to be sung by the people of God. We read beginning in verse 1, David writing under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, and he says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices, and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace. I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, your words in this psalm spoken through your king and your prophet David, were words that were no doubt true in his day. As he spoke of your repeated deliverances that he had from his enemies. As he had confidence in you that you would listen to his prayer and deliver him. And when in boldness he called all the wicked to repent, These were words that were true in his day. These were words that were most especially true and fulfilled in the days of Christ. The greater David and his son. Christ himself, who we see all throughout the Gospels, repeatedly withdrew to be in prayer, to be in communion with you. Praying confidently and knowing that you would answer all of his cries. You would deliver him from the hands of his enemies and throughout his ministry, calling men to repentance. And he speaks now, still, 
through the word of God, calling sinners to repent and to trust in the Lord. I pray for our time this morning, Lord, that through this psalm you would show us Christ, you would humble us, you would encourage your people, you would correct us in our sin, and you would call sinners to forsake their sin and to come to Christ and so be saved. As your word is proclaimed this day, Lord, we need the spirit of God to be present in power. And so do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our psalm this morning is best understood in connection with the several psalms that have come before, and there are many connections, but just to name a few. Psalm 3, verse 5, speaks of the psalmist laying down and sleeping. And likewise, in Psalm 4, verse 8, we read there, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. Psalm 3, verses 1 and two speaks of the many who are the enemies of the king and what they are saying about him. And likewise, Psalm 4, verse 6 speaks of the many and what they are saying. In Psalm 3, verse 3, David uses the phrase, my glory, to refer to the Lord. And in Psalm 4, verse 2, he again uses the same phrase, my glory, or it may in the ESV say my honor. And here he is referring to his own glory. You can think as well about Psalm 4, verse 2, where the wicked are being rebuked for loving vain words, that which is vanity. And then in Psalm 2, verse 1, the wicked, the rulers, the peoples of the earth, they're all plotting against the Lord and against his Messiah in vain. More connections could be added, but the point is that this psalm continues to develop many of the themes that were introduced in the beginning of the Psalter, in Psalms 1 and 2, and then carry forward in Psalm 3. The conflict between the righteous and the wicked, the call for the wicked to forsake their ways, the confidence of the king in the promises of God and the opposition of the wicked to the anointed king, who is, of course, Christ. Now, this morning, I'm not going to rehash all of the reasons why I think we should read 
the Psalms and especially the Davidic Psalms as ultimately being about Christ. You can go back, you can listen to the introductory message on the Psalms for those reasons, like the narrative plot line of the Psalms, the fact that David is speaking as a prophet. I'm not going to rehash those this morning, but I do want to take those arguments that I made several weeks back as the starting assumption of this psalm, which is to say that this psalm we're in, Psalm 4, is ultimately about Christ. It is about his relationship with and his joy in God. We see here even his priestly, intercessory role. And we see his call to the wicked to repent and to trust in the Lord. And so as we look at this psalm this morning, I want to frame it around the ministry of Christ. And I want to look at it in four parts. So if you're taking notes, you can write these down. So first, we will look at the confidence of Christ in God. The confidence of Christ in God. Second, we'll look at the joy of Christ in God. The joy of Christ in God. Third, we're going to look at the intercession of Christ to God. The intercession of Christ to God. And then lastly, we'll look at the command of Christ from God command of Christ from God. And, and when you hear me this morning referring to Christ as the speaker in the psalm, I want you to think of two people. I want you to think of David, of course, as the first anointed king whom God made a covenant with, and David's son, Jesus, as the Christ. These are the words, of course, of both of them. The words of David, who is the original author, and the words of David's son, who is the one who fulfills them. So as we work through the psalm, let's first of all look at the confidence of Christ in God. Now, this particular psalm is structured in what's called a chiasm, which in simple terms basically just means that the first line of the psalm corresponds to the last line of the psalm, and it works its way up until the middle, where you get in verses 4 and 5, which is essentially the, the main point or the main call in the psalm. For us, of course, this means that, that verse 1 of Psalm 4 corresponds with verse 8. And it's these two verses together that show us the confidence of Christ in God. Look with me again at verse 1. Christ prays, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. This is his appeal, his petition to God. God, 
is his righteousness. And in this context, that means that God is the one who vindicates him. He is the one who proves the Davidic Christ to be true, to be right in all of his ways in the face of his many enemies who are causing him distress and who are plotting and working against him. God will vindicate him. And Christ, on that basis, is appealing to God to answer his prayers for deliverance. And as he prays to God, he does so confidently because he remembers the goodness of God and the many times that God has delivered him in the past. He goes on to say, You have given me relief when I was in distress. And I think here the the NET Bible captures the imagery here well when it, it renders this verse like this. It says, though I am hemmed in, you will lead me into a wide open place. And the reason it does so is because the word for distress has to do with being in a narrow, closed in place. It's as if all of Christ's enemies are closing in around him. They're surrounding him. They're laying siege to him. They're cutting off all supplies of goodness. Every path that you could take to get away from them, they've blocked it off and are hemming him in. But God here causes a path to be opened wide for him to, in essence, walk through the rage of his enemies unscathed. It reminds you of the time when Jesus was in the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth when his ministry had just begun. And he opened the Isaiah scroll and he read from it and he told the people after reading from it, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they were all pleased by his words. They were rejoicing over what he was saying in that moment until he started reminding them of their own troubled history of rejecting the prophets of God, at which point we then read in verses 28 and 29, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. He's surrounded by all of these people in his hometown who are now raging against him because he has now said something to them that is not as pleasing to their ears. He is reminding them of their troubled past with sin and the rejection of all of God's prophets and they're full of rage and they want to kill him. And at this point in Jesus's ministry, you're wondering how long is this ministry going to last? He just went through these temptations. 
He's now beginning his preaching ministry, and they're already trying to kill him. What's going to happen? And you wonder, how does someone escape in such a situation like this? And then Luke just sort of casually tells us in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. Now, we don't know exactly what transpired, just that this was a dire situation, and Jesus walked right out of it. It was not yet his time to give himself into the hands of the wicked, and so even when he was hemmed in on all sides, God opened a broad path for him to walk through and to escape. And this is the kind of thing that, that, that is the reason for the confidence that is on display in the psalm. Christ speaks of God's repeated deliverances. And because of this, he petitions God to show him favor and to hear his prayer. And because he knows that God will hear his prayer, he can have peace in all of these dire circumstances, as he goes on to say later in verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is virtually the same thing that we saw last week from Psalm 3, verse 5. The confidence of Christ in God's care and provisions is such that he could be surrounded by enemies on all sides. He could be without the comfort of a, of a place to sleep and to rest his head. He could be in the wilderness. He could be hanging on a cross. And he can still entrust himself, entrust his spirit into the hands of God. And this is a confidence, friends, that we can also have as his people. It has been said before, in the midst of perils and evils, nothing is more safe than to make God our refuge. And this, of course, does not mean that we will never experience perils and evils, that we will never face any trials and great afflictions. No, in fact, of course, for the Christian, the opposite is promised. First John chapter 3, verse 13 says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. If, if this was not a normal thing, you'd probably have cause for surprise. But he said, don't be surprised that the world hates you. The Christians should not be surprised by conflict with the world because the conflict with the world is the norm. The world is passing away, but the Christian abides forever. It is a difference between that which is fading and that which is enduring. There is a contrast and a conflict between the light and the dark. Perils will come. Evil will fall on us. And yet, despite all of it, we can have confidence in God 
because He will be our refuge through it and His sovereign hand will ordain all things for our good. There is not a moment that we are ever called to carry a cross where God is not present with us, holding up our own hands so that that cross can be borne. Christ tells us that if we are going to be his disciples, we must be prepared to carry those crosses. And we have to remember that all of those crosses that are given to us to bear are crosses that are given to shape us more into the image of Christ. Now, secondly, we see here the joy of Christ in God. The joy of Christ in God. And this is in verses 2 and, and 7. In verse 2, Christ the King addresses his enemies. It says, O men, or sons of men, which could be a reference to either just men in general or specifically to men of royal rank and rulers. But either way, he gives a rhetorical question. How long shall my honor, shall my glory be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Again, we have here another connection with Psalm 2. The wicked, Psalm 2, verse 1, they are plotting in vain. And here in 4, verse 2, they love vain words. Let me say that again. They love them with their hearts their affections. They love vanity. Sinful men find joy in things that are worthless. Things that are perishing. Sinful man's affections are drawn after lives. Jesus said a fallen men in John chapter 3 verse 19 and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people loved darkness they loved it they crave it they want it that's what they desire darkness rather than the light because their works are evil this point this observation cannot be stressed enough. We saw it even in 2 Peter. Sin is fundamentally a matter of the heart. And as a matter of the heart, it means that what people at their core are drawn towards is sin and idolatry. They're not seeking God. You've maybe heard of the whole seeker-sensitive movement of churches that has been with us now for 20, 30 years. The philosophies still reign. 
All people are basically seeking after God, we're told. And we just have to make things easy for them. Wrong. No one seeks for God. Paul makes that very clear in Romans 3. The fundamental disposition of man is that of enmity with God. One of the descriptions that Paul gives of men at the end of Romans 1 is that we're God-haters. We do not seek God, but we seek sin and idolatry. And because of that, there is no neutrality with man. He is, in his very nature, in rebellion, hating God, hating Christ. He desires anything other than Christ. Give him a false Christ, and he'll take the false Christ. He'll gladly accept that. Tell him that there is a Jesus, there is a Christ who loves him just the way he is. There's no need to change, no need to repent. God takes you how you are and will keep you how you are forever. Tell him about that Christ and he'll praise you for it. Why? Because you are telling him nothing more than what he already believes about himself. How good of a man he is. How good of a woman she is. Preach to him the gospel of the liberal Christ. How Richard Niebuhr once famously described it. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Preach that gospel and that Christ to him and he will shout for joy. That sounds like a fun Christ. I can take him, but preach the true Christ to him. Tell him that he is corrupt at the core of his being. Tell him that as much as he says, my heart's good, I, I, I do these things I'm not proud of, I, I do these things, I know they're sin, but my heart's good, God knows my heart. Tell him your heart is wicked. Tell him you're corrupt at the core. Tell him that he displeases God every moment he rejects Christ. Tell him that the things that he loves are sin and that his heart and affections must be radically regenerated. Tell him that Holy Scripture stands as the authority over the whole of his life. Tell him that God makes demands on how his very life should be lived. Tell him that what he does in the privacy of his own home is not his own business, but the business of God, because God demands the whole man. And you will then really see whether or not a man loves Christ. Or loves a false one. Whether or not he wants a tamed God. Or the true God. Whether or not he wants the devil. 
or God, sin or Christ. For Christ, his affections are utterly different. The opposite end. What brings him joy is not the lies. It's not sin. What brings him joy is not even the things that are genuinely good in creation. What brings him the greatest joy is God himself. He says in verse 7 of the Lord, you have put more joy in my heart than they have. That is, the lie-loving men than they have when their grain and wine abound. He is not simply saying here that he has equal joy or a comparable joy. He is saying he has more joy, far more joy. It's not hard to think of how joyful men become when they have had a prosperous year, when their grain, when their new wine abounds, when their business did well, when their profits increased. I remember in, in 2020 and 2021 talking to several people who were in the real estate business. And everything was booming, skyrocket, prices going through the roof. And you talk to them, and how's life? Life is great. The money's rolling in. Got a new car. How's your family? Family's doing great. Going on vacations, all the most expensive places you could think of. It's just wonderful. Ran into one of those people again a couple of months ago. Of course, the real estate market had cooled off, and I found out he's not working in real estate anymore. The money dried up, marriage is crumbling, wife and husband are getting divorced, there's no joy. It went up and right back down. Just in a matter of a year or two, the joy goes from the record highs to the record lows. That's the fickle joy of man who finds all of his joy and satisfaction in the created thing. Things which are good, things which we can delight in, but not as an ultimate good. Christ says, however, in verse 7, that the joy in his heart, the joy of the Lord, far surpassed even the record high joys of men who put their trust in the, in the world. And there is no greater joy to pursue. Goods will rust away. Food will rot. But God never changes. And so if you pursue finding your joy in him, you will have a joy that endures even when everything else fades away 
even when all of the goods of the world come to an end, even when everything around you seems to be crashing down, you can still have joy because it's rooted in the unchanging God of heaven and earth. Now, third, I want us to look next at the intercession of Christ to God. The intercession of Christ to God. We've, we've seen the confidence of Christ in God, the joy of Christ in God. Now I want us to consider the intercession of Christ to God. Now this idea can be seen in verses 3 and 6, particularly the end of verse 6. But in verse 3, we see here the wicked men who seek after lies are still being addressed. And Christ speaks to them and tells them that one of the reasons their pursuits are vain and pointless is because they're pursuing the opposite of what Christ is praying for. They are fighting against his prayers. Their intention is to shame him and to ridicule him, but their efforts will ultimately amount to nothing. Why? Because of verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now, the godly here could be a, a, a generic term for, for all saints, all godly people, as it sometimes is, especially when we find it in the plural. But here I think it refers to a single individual, the godly one, very much like it does in Psalm 16, verse 10, where we read there, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one, your godly one, see corruption. The godly one, in other words, is Christ. And God has set apart Christ for himself. He makes a distinction between Christ and all others. Just as he guarded his people Israel from the plagues of Egypt. And we read in Exodus 11 verse 7 that the Lord makes a distinction, a separation between Egypt and Israel. So also does he make a distinction a separation between Christ and the wicked for himself. And as we read at the end of verse 3, this gives Christ more confidence to pray to the Lord. He says, the Lord hears when I call to him. But as the psalm progresses, and then we get down to verse 6, which is the corresponding verse, we find there that the prayer that Christ lifts up to God is not simply a prayer for his own deliverance from his enemies, but it is also a priestly intercession on behalf of his people. In verse 6 we read this, we read of the many again, and what are they saying? They are saying, who will show us some good? And this is where the quote ends. In, in, in basically every other translation, I've got to go against my ESV here. 
Basically, every other translation, they rightly recognize the quote ends right here. The many are saying, who will show us some good? These people are presently doubting the kingship of Christ. In David's day, it's the people wondering, is David king? Is he the one who's going to show us good? Or is Absalom king? Or is Saul king? Who will show us some good? Who will cause us to prosper? In Jesus' day, it's his own household. It's his own hometown. The people of Nazareth that rejected him. It's even his own disciples. Luke 24, verse 21, we read there, the disciples on the road to Emmaus are saying, we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Who will show us some good? And then we read at the end of verse 6, Christ is speaking again. And here he offers up a priestly prayer. He says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Now, I say that this is a priestly prayer because it alludes to the ironic blessing that the priests were given to offer to God on behalf of Israel. We read, for example, in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22 to 27, the ironic blessing. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. This is the prayer that's being offered up to God in the psalm. The king is not only acting in the office of king, but also in the office of priest. Of course, we see this in the life of David as well, where he was not only the king of Israel, but he wore priestly garments. He wore the priestly ephod. He had authority over the Levites. We see it, of course, chiefly in the person of Jesus, who occupies the office of prophet, king, and priest. And here, in verse 6, on behalf of those who are wavering in their trust in the king, who will show us some good, on behalf of those who are being more influenced by the wicked, by the prosperity of the wicked, and by the world, Christ intercedes and he calls upon God to bless his people and to make the light of his face shine upon him. He is the great intercessor. And we, as his people, need his constant 
intercessory, priestly work on our behalf at all times, no doubt, but especially when we're wavering. Especially when we are wavering. When the temptations of the flesh are becoming powerful and we find ourselves weak and helpless to overcome them, when the world surrounds us on all sides, when it's pressuring us, when it's whispering in our ears, giving subtle suggestions of just a little compromise. A little compromise with sin never harmed anyone. You have the grace of God. When those temptations are strong and when our faith is weak and when we are trapped in spiritual darkness, it is these times especially when we need the intercessory work of Christ. And it is then that he offers them on our behalf. He does not simply intercede as our great high priest when all things are going well. When we feel as if we've been totally cleansed of all of our sins. The defining characteristic of his sacrificial work was to offer himself on our behalf while we were still enemies. Christ died for us. He is not a priest who is just waiting for us to slip so that he can strike us down. No, he prays for us even when in our weakness we fail to pray to him. When we are faithless, he is faithful as a good and faithful high priest. And he intercedes for us every day. Now, this leads us to our last point, which is where we then see the command of Christ from God. This is the center of the psalm, verses 4 and 5. And Christ here is addressing all the men, all people, who have been in rebellion. And here he calls them to repentance and to trust in the Lord. He calls sinful men to turn away from their sinful ways and to trust in the Lord. Verse 4 paints the picture of a man working through the errors of his ways. We read in verse 4, Be angry. And do not sin. This is quoted, we read from it earlier, by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.26 in a context that is describing what repentance looks like. What does it look like? Now that you are in Christ, you're living as a new man, what does turning away from sin look like? It is a saying as well that has no doubt caused many interpreters to stumble over its meaning. Is Paul, is, is Christ, is the psalmist calling us to be angry? Some have suggested, and I used to hold this, this very view, that permission is being given to display righteous 
anger, but that you need to be careful not to indulge it too much and fall into sin through it. Now, I certainly think that there is a place for righteous indignation. We ought to have anger over evil, clear evil in the world. But I don't think this text is actually saying that. The context of Ephesians, of course, is stressing the need to deal with the sin quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with this soon. And if it was a matter of dealing with righteous anger, that wouldn't really make much sense. Because righteous anger may be something that endures over a long period of time. I mean, I remember when we were involved with ministry at the abortion clinics in Louisville. That'll cause you to have righteous anger over the wickedness that is going on. And it doesn't just go away once the, once the day comes to an end. And of course, Paul in the context is, is speaking about something that has to be dealt with rather quickly. Righteous anger is not sinful. And yet what he's speaking of is. I think based on the the context of Ephesians and especially the context of the psalm where sinful men are being called to repentance, it's best to understand this as a rhetorical phrase. In other words, the command has a bit of sarcasm in it. For example, if I wanted to be really mean and I did something that cause somebody to be offended and they come to me and they say this is what you've done it 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 caused me to be offended and i wanted to be mean i'm not going to do this but i'm just telling you and i said go cry about it well i'd be doing several things in that statement one of them would be increasing the level of offense But one thing I would not be doing is telling them literally to go and cry somewhere. It's a phrase. It's rhetorical. The meaning of the words is not communicating the actual meaning of what's being stated. Do you understand? There's rhetoric that is being involved here. And it's similar in Psalm 4. Sinful men who love vanity, who seek lies, and who are raging against Christ are being called to repentance. And the rhetorical response begins, be angry. And then their anger is immediately cast aside by the following three commands. Do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your own beds and be silent. What they're ultimately being called to do is to cease their rebellion, to stop their raging. And in a very real sense, there's a kind of parental instruction that's being given here. Go to your rooms. Go to your bed. Think about what you've been doing. Come to your senses Let your rage calm down. 
and be quiet. Stop the raging. There is a kind of parental rebuke. They have been uttering nonsense, speaking vanity against the king, and now they need to be quiet. Stop sinning. Then what? Verse 5. Offer right sacrifices. Which means they're acknowledging that they've sinned. They're going to the altar to offer a sacrifice so that their sins may be atoned for. And then they're called to put their trust in the Lord. It's a call to repentance, friends. It's a call to repentance. A call coming from God and delivered by Christ. It is a description of repentance under the old covenant economy. But the call then is, of course, the same today. Rebellion against Christ is utterly foolish. It will amount to nothing. You don't win that fight. You will lose it. And lose it in an eternal manner. The call to all people now is the same. Repent. Disobedience to his commands is fruitless. And so what are you to do? Stop. Stop it. Stop making excuses. Stop justifying the sin. Stop coming up with reasons why it's okay, why you can continue. No, stop it. Repentance requires you stop sinning, stop rebelling, stop listening to your own heart. That's what the world tells you to do, right? Listen to your heart. The the, the heart's good. You listen to it. That's not what Scripture tells you to do. Literally, in, in Hebrew, it says here, speak with your heart. Stop listening to the heart. You tell the heart. You tell the heart what is right. And you tell it what is right on the basis of what is revealed through the Word of God. You know, all throughout the Psalms, you see the psalmist speaking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Why are you downcast? You have to do that. You have to stop listening and start speaking to your heart the words of Christ and calling yourself to repentance. This is preaching the gospel to yourself every day. The sin that entangles you, you are called to cut it off and to kill it. You don't play with it like a sweet puppy. It is a viper that will poison you. You kill it. You go to Christ who has presented himself as the right sacrifice. You go to him for atonement. You confess your sins to him and your sins will be washed and cleansed in his blood 
and then you trust in the Lord all your days. Sometimes I think we can we can overcomplicate the Christian life. It can be a a hard battle, no doubt, because fighting sin is hard, but it's really not complicated. There, there's not a lot to, to get your mind around in terms of the basic walk with Christ. You turn from your sin, you trust in the Lord. You cry out to Him for mercy and He will intercede on your behalf. He will wash you of your sins. And as He prays here in the priestly prayer, He will cause the face of the Lord himself to shine upon you. The promise that is extended to all sinners who turn from their sin and to turn and turn to Christ is that your sins will be washed, you will have an atonement, and God will bless you all your days. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he gave his life on behalf of sinners like us. That he has offered the right sacrifice once for all, that all of our sins may be cleansed. We may stand righteous before you. We may have victory over our sin, the grace of forgiveness and blessings all our day. I pray, Lord, for your people who are here, that we would all the more wage the good fight, that we would pursue holiness with all of our strength, and for those who do not know you, God, that you would humble them Make them miserable in their sin until they repent to you and find the joy of the forgiveness of God in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.